We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own and we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and the name of him was called Zerah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word which deals with us in all the trials and hardships, realities, difficulties of life. Thank you, Lord, that you, in the midst of of sin, you in, in the midst of bad choices, you in the midst of unlikely people, you are redeeming a people to yourself. Thank you, God, that you are redeeming people through flawed and sinful creatures, Lord, and you're not limited in any way. Lord, I pray that you would help us see these things in your word. Pray that we'd help us see you. And Lord, I pray that you would build our faith as a result. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, there was a TV series that was on a few years ago. It was, it was called 24, and it was this, this breathless, almost fast-paced story. The action was quick and intense. The story, it often cuts between one scene to another with this dun-dun-dun-dun, and this is pounding it's this breathless show, and if you really don't pay attention, you, you, might, you might miss what's going on in each scene, in each episode, and there's multiple things happening all at the same time. I remember the first time I saw it, it was like there was these four pains, and I couldn't, couldn't really keep track of it, and, but in some way, they interrelated, and, and you find out later how, and, and it helps make sense of the whole thing, explain what's going on, and in, and in some ways, it feels like that with Genesis 38. You see, as we've been going through the book of Genesis it seems to be going from the story of one patriarch to the next and one patriarch to the next. And last, last time we were in Genesis chapter 37, we heard about Joseph and the beginning of his story and, and how his, his brothers had brutally taken him and stripped off his robe and thrown him into a pit. And how Judah himself hatched the idea to, to take their brother and sell him into slavery for a little bit of money. And so all of the sudden now, this story cuts in. Last, last time we left the story, Joseph was being taken to Egypt and put in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, we see Judah. And, and, and there's this interruption in the story. And then next week, we're going to be resuming the story of Joseph. And you, what in the world? Lord, what were you doing? Why did you have this passage here? And if you're not careful, just like you can miss what's going on with 24 other shows like that, if you don't pay attention, it's easy to, to lose sight of what's going on and lose sight about what the purpose of this is. But here's the good news. Unlike that fast-paced thing, we have plenty of time. And we can, we can know God's Word and He can make it available to us. And we don't have to wonder about the purpose. And it's not just disjointed. And it does help explain the story of Genesis overall. See, the reality is that in chapter 37, the author is letting us know that this is part of the account of the generations of Jacob. It's not really the Joseph story. This is the account in chapter 37 on of the generations of, of Jacob, of Israel, the beginning of God's people. And we can see how God uses Joseph and he uses Judah and then later on he uses a drought, if you know the, the biblical narrative well, and he uses Pharaoh and he uses all those things to work about his plan of redemption in the people of Israel. And in fact, this story in chapter 38 of Judah, it really serves to explain how did Judah come from being this cold, heartless, uncaring brother Remember, he's the brother who came up with the idea to, to sell Joseph into slavery for money, his own flesh and blood. It didn't seem to bother him very much. It shows the transformation, really, of Judah, this cold, heartless individual at the beginning of the chapter. And we can see that God uses circumstances and events to transform him. And so that's why this passage is critical in the middle here. You can see that later on in chapter 44, if you've ever read through Genesis, in chapter 44, Judah at one point actually offers his, his life in exchange for his brother. So how, what happened? How did that transformation occur? And that, that transformation occurred right here in chapter 38 when God used difficulties, trials, judgments, sin, his own sin, consequences, hardship to humble him, to reveal his need for God. It paints a stark contrast as well, which is meant to do between Joseph, who was walking with integrity in the house of Potiphar. He did not sin. It was not immoral. He had integrity. He was full of faith and trust in God in the midst of circumstances. And yet in this chapter, we see that no, Judah was not that kind of man to begin with. He was not the man who deserved to be the rightful heir. And yet God chose him anyway. Not because he deserved that. He was not the man who deserved to be the royal bloodline that eventually led to David and that would lead to Jesus. He was full, of, instead of Joseph, who was very moral, very upright, he was full of immorality, deceit. He lied, he he, he failed to take his obligations up as a man. But both of these men, both Joseph and Judah, 
They're in the process of being conformed into the men that God would have them be by his providence. Different circumstances, different situations, but God is providentially orienting all their circumstances in life. In this chapter specifically, God is working through some bad choices, isn't he? He's working through some bad choices. He works through sinful people and very unlikely people. A Canaanite woman. But through it all, God is working. Through it all, God is working. And how is he working? He's working to redeem. God's working to redeem. And that's what we're going to focus on from these verses today. And that's really just the main idea of this chapter we're going to draw out. Is that God works his plan of redemption no matter what. God works his plan of redemption no matter what. Not human sin. Not unlikely choices of a Canaanite woman. Not bad choices that Judah makes. No matter what, God is working his plan of redemption. And that's meant to give us great faith and hope. Just as it was meant to give the Israelites faith and hope. Not in their ability to faithfully keep the commandments and keep the promise. But in God as the faithful redeemer. So look, look down in, in the first chapter. It says that, that Judah went down from his brothers. And that, that's not just meant that he went down physically or height-wise he went down, but it's, he went away from his brothers. If you recall, the people of Israel were called to be together, to, to remain as a part of the covenant people, to be distinct, to be separate, to be apart from the Canaanites and not to intermarry. And if you recall, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were very strict about not marrying into the Canaanite culture. And yet we see that Judah makes some rotten choices. He's making a mistake right at the very outset. And we can see that although he made some really rotten choices, God is at work even through bad choices. And that's the first point this morning, that God works. God works even through bad choices, through our bad choices, through Judah's bad choices. God is at work through bad choices of maybe family members or people around us. God will be at work. Have you ever made bad choices in your life? Man, I, I, I can't even count them. <laughs> the bad choices that have been made, they've been contrary to God's righteous commands. They, they, are, they are too numerous to count. I, just, I, can't, I can't even recall the first bad choice I made. I can recall hundreds afterwards, but I, I, I mean, I can't even, I can't recall all of them. They're just too numerous. All the bad choices in my life, and if, if my life depended upon, if my hope and my faith depended upon me making the right choices, us making the right choices, if Judah's hope to be the heir depended upon making the right choices, boy, he's in trouble. And we're in trouble. But as I walk with God, I'm learning that God redeems and he works even through bad choices. I'm learning to make choices, hopefully they're pleasing to God, and I still fail and make decisions based on what seems right to me. You ever do that? You know, this seems like a good idea, and then you realize later, that was not a good idea. You ever seen those posters? Some of them are kind of obnoxious, but some of these posters around, they go the internet, spam, mail, you get them all the time, of, and, they, and there's a picture of somebody doing something really dumb, and it has a picture across the front, and it says, fail, in these big red letters. Life can feel like that at times, can it? It can feel like fail. Like somebody just stamped this big red fail on your life. You weren't stamping it there, but it, you just feel like it's there. A big red fail. And, and Judah, he leaves his family. He goes and he marries a Canaanite. He's the heir. He knows better. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, they all would have reiterated don't marry a Canaanite. What does he do? He leaves his family. He goes and does what's right in his own eyes. And he marries a Canaanite. Fail. <laughs> it highlights the contrast between the faith and chastity and godly leadership of Joseph. And we see this failure of, Ju of Judah. It shows the results of the folly of marrying outside of God's chosen people and living like one desires instead of how God commands and I know that I'm constantly tempted, and not about you, but I'm constantly tempted to, to live like I desire, to live by my desires, by live by what seems right to me. And that's, that's where the path that Judah is on at the beginning. But God rescues him here, and sometimes he rescues through bad things, through bad choices, and he allows consequences to happen. 
and God wakes us up and rescues us. The idea of being led by our own desire, doing what's right in our own eyes, it's, it's not a theme that's relegated to this chapter alone. We see that throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, you see that throughout the Old Testament. And then you look in, in the first five books of the Old Testament, you can see that there's a common refrain of they did what was right in their own eyes. That's not a good thing, by the way. Uh, and, and teens, by the way, as you're growing up and you're in the house and, and, and you're having your own identity and your parents are having another idea about what choices you should be making, be cautious. That should beware if you're doing what's right in your own eyes. Dads, if, you're, if, you're, if your wife is not in agreement with you, take a pause if you're making a decision and Make sure you're not just doing what's right in your own eyes. Singles, if you are doing something that ever, all your friends and all your godly people around you are saying, I don't think that's a good idea. Just, just take a moment, take a pause and say, I, hang on, I, I, might, I might be self-deceived here. Like Judah, like all of us are tempted to be. And I may be doing what's right in my own eyes. And I want to avoid the same trap. I want to avoid the same temptations not only did Judah go his own way, he helped, after he helped sell Joseph into slavery and marry a Canaanite, and he had to remember his uncle Esau did the same thing and it didn't turn out so well. His uncle Esau was rejected and, and then we don't really know anything of, of the relationship that Judah has with the daughter of Shua because it doesn't name her and that's unusual in one of the heirs of the patriarchs. From Abraham on, the heir's wife's name was always listed. Obviously, this is not a, a marriage that's approved of. And yet, God works through this bad choice. He has three children. We can see, though, that the story doesn't end well for all those children. And, and God doesn't condone what Judah did, even though he works in the midst of it. In fact, the law later specifies in detail about how the people of Israel to keep themselves pure and not marry outside of God's people. They're to stay together in the promised land. But Judah fails. He makes bad choices as a brother, doesn't he? He leaves his brothers. He makes bad choices as a father as well. He fails and makes bad choices taking the Canaanite woman for his son as well, his firstborn. He perpetuates these, these godless choices. But here's the wonderful thing. God takes Judah's failures and he's at work through them. And that's good news not just for Judah, not just for the people of Israel, but that's good news for us because God takes your failures and my failures and he works through them. It doesn't mean that we make good choices, but he he takes even those bad choices and he works them for all those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And what we're going to unpack really in the second point is that even though Judah and his sons are sinful in this account, God's at work because God works even through sinful people. God works even through sinful people. And that's good news too, isn't it? Not only does God work through bad choices, God works through sinful people. It's a source of hope for me. I'm aware that I'm, I'm not sinless. I'm a sinful person at times. Although I've been saved by grace and I've been called a saint, I'm aware there's a sin nature that remains and that I battle against. Because ever since Adam, God has been at work through sinful people and that's, that's good news for us. And if sinful people could thwart God's plan, if, if your sin could thwart God's plan, then God would not be God. But no, the good news is that God works even through sinful people because he's over all the plans of man and he's working all things together to bring about his purposes for his people. Sometimes I'm overly aware of my sin. I don't know about you, but I think we need to be overly aware of what, you know what, Lord? Thank you that you're at work. You're redeeming my bad choices. You're redeeming my sin. As many approves of that, but thanks be to God. He, he redeems, he works through and in and despite us. Instead we see God continues to work through Judah and through his sin even. And, and this truth that God continues to work even through sinful people, it's, it's not meant to let us off the hook but there's, there's some extreme consequences that come at times we, we see in Judah's life. 
he had some extreme consequences, didn't he? Look, look down in your Bible. It says, it says that Ur was, was evil. He did evil in God's sight and, and the Lord killed him. We, we don't know what it is that, that Ur did specifically. But apparently it was so evil that this is the first account of God singling out one individual and killing them. Now, now God killed the whole world except for Noah and his family. He, he killed Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped them out. But this is the first rare instance where Ur was so evil in God's sight as a member of the covenant family, God chose to kill him. He was wicked. So then Judah, he tells his son, look down in verse 8, he says, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. You see, in that culture, because Judah was the one who took Tamar's wife, I mean, took Tamar to, to be Ere's wife, he would have been responsible for her. And, and according to the, the ancient Near Eastern customs of that day, what later was called leveret marriage, and, and it was detailed in, the, in Deuteronomy and in Ruth later on, it was the responsibility of the remaining brother to remarry the, the wife or the brother who had died. And actually, if all the brothers died, then it would have been the responsibility of the father to marry his, his son's wife. So since only two brothers remained, Onan would have gotten half. So there were three brothers. Ur died, so Onan would have gotten half the inheritance. The problem is, his dad said, go and fulfill the obligation you have, according to the customs. And so... Onan, instead of getting half the estate, was thinking, I'm only going to get one-third now. And, and Onan would have gotten the right of inheritance, but if he has to go into his brother's wife, then the child that's fathered is actually going to get the inheritance now. So Onan is, is greedy. He's unrighteous. He's selfish. He's thinking only of himself and not his father's wishes or Tamar's integrity or the law of the land in that day. In the same law of the land that remained until Jesus' time, by the way. So Onan went into her and he, and he had sex with her. And the implication of the phrase we have in English is whenever he went in. And that he did that often. This isn't just a one-time occurrence. Whenever he went into her. He was unjust. He was ripping her off. He was selfish. He was just using her body for his personal pleasure. He was defrauding her. He was keeping her. You see, if, if she had an heir, that heir would have been given an inheritance. So she would have been provided for as well. So in, in keeping that from her, he was, he was failing to provide for her financially. And, in, and in, in every way, he was doing her wrong. The whole purpose of the law was to provide for the woman and to ensure his brother's name lived on. Yet he deceived and defrauded and he still had sex with her. And then he used his brother's wife for his own personal gratification and defrauded her and didn't give her a child as the law required. He did what most sinners do, didn't he? He happily embraced the pleasures of sin, but he didn't take the responsibility that went with it. We're tempted to do that too. I mean, not in the same way, but we're tempted to happily em embrace the pleasures that go along with sin without taking the responsibility that goes along with it. He denied his dead brother the possibility of carrying on his name. He desecrated his sacred duty by, by drawing and wasting his semen on the ground, the Bible says, to make sure he didn't get her pregnant. So in doing so, he's, he's abusing his brother's name. He's, he's disobeying his father. He's abusing Tamar. And all of this was wicked in his sight. R.C. Sproul says, By... By this, Onan figuratively raises his fist in protest against heaven since his deeds ultimately attempt to block God's promise to give Jacob many grandsons. Thus, the Lord strikes him down. So God puts Onan to death for his wickedness. And although we don't know how God put him to death, it must have been very clear to everybody that God did that. Now, let me make a couple small asides. This is, this is an awkward text at times because you have to make an aside because this text has been so misinterpreted at times and used for different purposes that would not really be in the context of this text. So this text has been, it's been wrongly used over the years to both condemn masturbation and also to condemn birth control generally. And although Onan is he's sinning and not giving Tamar a child, the text is not about condemning either of those things. 
He was an unrighteous man who did not fulfill his obligations. He was not providing and caring for her. He was being selfish and abusing and using her. If you want to address the, the problem of masturbation, don't have to go much further than addressing it for the, the raw selfishness that it is and the idolatry that it is and the idols of the heart, including lust, which Jesus addressed directly when he talks about even looking at a woman alone is a serious sin like adultery. This passage, isn't, it's not speaking about birth control either, and it's been used over, over hundreds of years to talk about that. It's not the point of the passage and why it's here in Genesis, but, but because a lot of people have heard that message, I want to make a, a side comment for a moment. We, um, when it comes to birth control, we, we do believe that, that you can prayerfully seek the Lord and that some birth control measures are acceptable and, and, and they can be undertaken prayerfully and done with motives to please God and not just sheer selfishness. At the same time, I want to make it clear that we're against measures that would result in, in aborting fertilized ovaries and no matter what the stage. Because the Bible would say that life begins at conception. And, but we're, we're going to leave it there. And since this passage is primarily not concerned with those issues, I'm going to move on. I mentioned because this passage has been misused in either of those cases. And I'd love to talk to you about either one of those things if you, if you have questions about those areas and especially when it comes to this passage. But, but by the way, if you, if you have... If you've sinned in either of those areas, forgiveness and redemption is freely available. Isn't that good news? If you've sinned in either of these areas, forgiveness and redemption, it's, it's freely available. God can redeem any sin that any one of us has done, no matter how small or big. You see, God is bigger and his grace is greater than all of our sin, even the most heinous sins we can imagine. The whole story of Genesis, this whole account is meant to show us that God's grace is greater than human failings. God's grace is greater than human sin. We see God's grace trumping man's great sin. And where, where sin is abounding in this passage, grace is abounding all the more. That's good news for all of us. No matter what your past is, and you can have a greater promise that all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our past can be redeemed. Why? Because we have a great redeemer in God. We have a great redeemer in Jesus Christ. For those who believe in Jesus Christ. You see, whenever we read the Old Testament, we get the privilege of reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And for us who believe in Jesus Christ, the good news is no matter what we've done, all the punishment that we deserve is, has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. No further punishment, no further condemnation remains for those in Christ Jesus. So don't listen to the voice of the accuser of the brothers who says that you're still guilty, who says that you, you're not able to be forgiven for whatever that is that's going through your head, that you're not condemned. If you've repented and believed in him, don't think you're not accepted because of something you've done. You're accepted because Jesus has been accepted by God. Because Jesus lived the perfect life that you can never do it. Jesus was accepted by God and God applied all of those perfect things to you. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, nothing should inhibit you from, from knowing that you're accepted in the beloved because of him and not because of you. And that's good news. None of our sinful behavior, our sinful life can't keep us from God's grace. And that makes us revel in the grace of God even more, doesn't it? Amen. So getting back to our story. Sorry about the sides. Judah responds in fear, not in faith, and he sends Tamar away, and he falsely promises to give her his son. And Judah, he really didn't intend to give Shelah to Tamar. And from the very beginning, it says he was afraid that, that he died just like Aaron Onan did. And so Judah didn't want to lose his only son, so he sends her away. But in sending her away, he was mistreating her. That wasn't a normative thing. You see, he was the one who was now responsible for her. She was a member of his household. She bore his name. Because of the one who had legal authority over her, he should have cared for her. He should have provided for her well-being. Instead, he casts her out and sends her back to her father. He shamefully sends her back, but at the same time, he obligated her to not remarry. So he's obligating her, and he's sending her away and not providing for her. Judah is not a nice dude. Long period passes, and it says, look down your Bible, it says, in the course of time. That, that implies a longer period of time, and yet Judah still has not given his son Shelah to the woman, and Tamar knows that Judah has no intentions of Shelah marrying her. This would have been a despicable thing to a faithful Israelite. 
But Judah's unconcerned and he goes out to a time of celebration. So he knows his son's of age. He's past the grieving time. His, his wife has died and he's gotten over the grief of that. And he's got to be aware that he's got a daughter-in-law who he, he is mistreating. And so he goes out and celebrates. Time of sheep shearing, it would have been a huge party. And, and Judah, he goes up to the party with his friend in Timnah. The same place, ironically, later on where the, one of the judges of Israel, Samson, um, he would see a daughter of the Philistines and marry her. Well, these, these sheep shearing times, and they were festive times. They were sexual temptation. They would have been sharpened by the, the Canaanite cult that believed that there was some magical thing that happened if you had sex with a temple prostitute that somehow would make your sheep more fertile. So that's why she was going up and placing herself there because it would have been common for women to sell themselves there and take advantage of, of myths like that. And so... Tamar, unlike Judah, though, she's still grieving. She still has on her, her widow's mourning clothes. Clearly, Shelah was not going to be her husband. He, he was of age already. and She had refused to take a Canaanite husband. and She was committed to being a part of God's chosen people despite their problems. She was, she was aggressively committed to being a part of the covenant family still, even though they were being jerks to her. So no brother was available. It would have been accepted and, and expected that the father would have fathered a son by the woman. So though that sounds really creepy to us today, she was justified in doing that and it was actually honorable. So scripture does not chastise her. So it sounds creepy in our context today, but let's be careful we don't read into scripture from our 21st century context. So Judah sees her. And this just shows you what, how he was led by his senses, led by emotions. He, he obviously wasn't planning to go up to a prostitute because he didn't have any money with him, didn't have any, any payment with him, but he was that sensually led. He was that led by his emotions that he saw her and he had to have her. So he, he, he goes up to her and he really just crassly says, let me come into you and sleep with you. And so they bargain over the price he, although the narrator makes it clear that Judah is not intentionally violating his daughter-in-law. He doesn't know it's her. He's not intentionally committing adulterous incest by having sex with her outside of marriage. Later we're going to see he didn't sleep with her again and he, he was trying to, to make sure he kept her integrity in his. But Judah, he was a profane fornicator. He bluntly asked her to sleep with him and, and then he promises to pay her with a young goat from the flock and she says, well, I'll make sure you, you give me a promise, your pledge. So he, he pledges. Eventually, she says, give me your signet. Give me your staff. The signet in those days would have been a little cylinder that was typically metal or stone. It would have been etched in it. They would roll it in clay and it would have been belonged to prominent men and they would have worn it around their necks as a symbol of, of their status. And they would have had a staff that was typically hand-carved and had their name in it. And it would have been their, their items, really, of um, trade to identify them, who they were, to authenticate them. And so she was being really clever it's, it's kind of like the ancient equivalent of, of taking his credit card and driver's license. And um, she had him. She, she'd gotten what she'd been striving for the whole time. Children of the promise, children of the covenant family. But in verse 20, it's clear that Judah obviously didn't want to be seen with her again. And he, he sends his friend back to get his signet and staff. But the man couldn't find her and he asks around. It becomes clear there's no pulp prostitute and they realize, oh my goodness, I've been duped. I don't know who that was, but I sure hope they don't tell anybody. Let her keep it. Let her keep my ID. I can go to the DMV and get a new one. It's going to be okay. It's less embarrassing than telling everybody what really happened. Sorry, there's no DMV in that day and I, I trust you know that. God was gracious in many ways to them, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> in... Uh, in verse 24, look down your Bibles with me please. In verse 24 it says, After three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Now this wasn't a typical punishment for adultery. It had been stoning, but not normally being burned alive. Judah didn't ask any questions. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't even want to validate if this is really true or not. He's, he's not interested in finding what's been going on. He's, he seems almost just to, to jump at the occasion to get rid of her. He's crass. He's cold. He's awfully quick too. Did you catch this? He's awfully quick to condemn her for what he had done. He said, she's immoral. Let her be burned. 
dude, um, weren't you immoral too? And he's failing to see that he's judging others for the very same things he's guilty of. But isn't that like all of us? Don't, aren't we tempted to do the same thing? I'm tempted and I do often, unfortunately. Uh, I evaluate others for the things they do and they happen to be the very same things I do. And sometimes it's my spouse. You're being self-righteous right now. Oh yeah, that's, that's really humble. I, I, uh, I may actually be being self-righteous in that moment. I'm telling my wife I'm, she's being self-righteous. Um, we are tempted in the same way to condemn others for the same things we're guilty of. If not the exact same things, it's the seeds really. Those root desires that give birth to those sins. There was a guy named, a long time ago, his name was Robert Murray McShaney, and he says, I am tempted to think that there are some sins for which I have no natural taste. You ever feel that way? I'm doing fine in those areas. I'm not even tempted there. So that I need not fear temptation to such sins. He says, this is a lie. A proud presumptuous lie. Uh, Corinthians would say that a little differently. He who, who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. This is a lie, a proud, presumptuous lie. The seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. Judah's hypocrisy was clear. We, we know from Hosea later on that God didn't condemn that kind of male-female hypocrisy. It, it tells us in Hosea that I won't punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with, with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God didn't condone it. He didn't condone that attitude. He didn't condone that perspective. Judah was a hypocrite. And God didn't condone the hypocrisy. And lastly, we're going to see that God works even through unlikely people. Actually, sorry, it's point three. God works even through unlikely people. In World War II, there's a story that, that many people know about. There's a guy named Oscar Schindler. He was an unlikely hero. You see, he was an ethnic German. He lived in Moravia, Czechoslovakia, and he joined the Nazi party voluntarily because he believed in their cause of the Aryan nation in 1939. And, but in the wake of the German invasion of Poland, Schindler went to Krakow and he assumes responsibility for the operation of two formerly Jewish-owned manufacturers of this enamel kitchenware. And he establishes his own enamel works outside of the city of Krakow. And through army contracts and he exploits uh, cheap labor from the Krakow ghetto and that cheap labor he was exploiting was primarily Jewish laborers. Through exploiting these Jewish laborers he amasses a fortune. He deals in the black market. He's living in high style. He's an unlikely hero. 1942 and early 1943 the Germans decimated the ghetto's population. Some 20,000 Jews through shootings and deportations. Several thousand Jews who survived were taken to Plassau, a forced labor camp run by the cruel Nazi SS. Moved by cruelties he witnessed, Schindler contrived to transfer his Jewish workers to barracks at his factory. In late summer 1944, through negotiations and bribes through his, from war profits, Schindler secured permission from Germany, German army and SS officers to move his workers and the other endangered Jews to Brunlitz near his hometown of his Whitehow. Each of these Jews was placed on Schindler's list. Schindler and his workforce set up a bogus munitions factory which sustained them in relative safety until the war ended and, and, and Schindler became an unlikely hero. A man who we'd not have thought of that God used to save people for himself. God's always been about working through unlikely people to bring about his purposes. God's always about working through unlikely people to bring about his purposes. Do you feel like you're an unlikely person for God to work through? Great. God's always been in the business of working through unlikely people to bring about his purposes. And in this case, in Genesis, God uses, he doesn't use one of the people of the promise. He uses a Canaanite woman who he commanded Abraham and Isaac not to go into Canaanite women. He later becomes a part of the law and yet a Canaanite woman, an unlikely person. 
The last person an Israelite reading this would have expected to be the hero of the story and the person who God uses to work through to continue the royal line of Judah. And not only that, he doesn't just use unlikely Tamar, he uses unlikely means. Both husbands were dead. Shelah was not marrying her. So God used Tamar even as she tempted Judah so that she could secure an heir to the promise. Unlikely people and unlikely means that God was using. Judah goes in and takes what he thinks is a prostitute and Tamar goes back in the morning. Judah tries to retrieve his signet and staff but finds out they've, they've disappeared. And you remember ironically Jacob his father deceived Isaac with his clothes. Judah deceived Jacob with the cloak of Joseph. And now Judah himself was deceived with a goat and his own signet and staff and cord. Then Judah discovers something. He discovers that now he's the immoral one. God uses Tamar, an unlikely person, to confront him. To bring him to repentance. And he does repent. He clearly recognizes them and he acknowledges that she's in the right and in fact the really nuanced language says she is in the right and I am not. Judah's repentant because he takes the public blame for what he did and he exonerates Tamar. Because we know about this as well. We, we know that he took the public blame and he exonerated Tamar. But who would have thought that a Canaanite woman who would who'd normally have been the downfall for the children of Israel, who would have thought this would be the one to rescue the line of Judah? Who would have thought that God would, would work through such an unlikely person as her? And yet God did. And all along God was working to redeem because that's what God does. God redeems. And our final fourth point is that God works to redeem God works to redeem, and that's good news for us. Tamar gives birth to two sons for Judah. He redeems through Tamar for Judah the two sons who were killed, and God changes Judah through hardship and through suffering and through sin, and he humbles Judah. So we see later in chapter 44 that Judah is, is a humble man who is actually others-focused and not selfish, who's thinking of his family, thinking of his little brother, thinking of his dad. He's willing to be sold into slavery later and God uses all these circumstances, suffering, death, and sin to redeem. Judah learned what it meant to protect his youngest son just as his father Jacob did. And he, he was a hard man at the beginning of the story. He was a hard man who sold his brother into slavery. We have no account of mourning for his two sons. Isn't that a little unusual? He didn't even mourn for his two sons being killed. And then we see him wanting to burn his daughter-in-law. This was one harsh guy. But the end of the chapter shows how God used hardship to transform a hard-hearted, selfish man into a humble man softened by trials. And that's good news, not just for us, but for maybe you're praying for somebody who you think is just too far gone. Maybe you're in a marriage where your spouse is not a believer and you're thinking there's just no hope here. Maybe one of your children seems hard-hearted and far Maybe one of your parents does. Maybe there's somebody in your life you feel like is beyond help and hope. The good news is they're not. God's working to redeem. God works to redeem. It's, this chapter is really about how God works to redeem and he changes character. He, it's also about how he brings justice for those who have been misused and badly abused. Tamar had been misused, badly abused relationally, financially, sexually used, but she still had faith in God and in the promise. And, and then the, we see that as well the theme of the older serving the younger. It's repeated in verse 29 when Zerah sticks his hand out but Perez pushes him aside somehow and comes out first. You see it's reiterating something here. It's reiterating the fact that God does not choose people based on human convention. God doesn't choose people based on what we think is right or good or who's worthy. He doesn't choose people based on tradition. No, he chooses people based on his grace. This chapter is all about God's transforming grace. According to Revelation 21.12, this is pretty astounding. Judah's name, the same Judah, Judah's name is written on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. Is that God's grace and mercy or what? 
His life is a testimony to God's redeeming grace. He, he failed as the son of the covenant. He failed as the father. He failed as the father-in-law. But even the worst of sinners can be saved by God's redeeming grace. And then Tamar, although she was mistreated and she was used, she was abused, God redeems her life and he rewards her. We know that now, having the New Testament as well, and the rest of the Old Testament, he rewards her loyalty to the covenant family and he redeems Judah's offspring through her to bring about David and then to bring about Jesus. <laughs> because God's heart is to redeem those who've been used and abused, affected by sin. Find out when we read the beginning of the book of Matthew that the line of Jesus came through Tamar. In fact, it's really cool. I'd encourage you sometime to go back and read the, the first part of the genealogy in Matthew. It's profitable for instruction. Only four names beside Mary. Aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus, only four names of women are named directly. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All these women, they came from outside of Israel. They were all Gentiles. All of them came from questionable backgrounds of some sort. But God was working to redeem each one of them because of their faith and His grace. And, and they each carried on the royal seed that would culminate with Jesus, the Messiah Himself. What hope for all Gentiles that God would redeem us too. That God would redeem sinful people like us. That God would redeem people who have been abused and used and mistreated. Even if we don't see it right away. God can redeem even the worst situations and backgrounds. God ultimately redeemed Judah instead of, instead of fail being written all over his name. And God takes Judah, Judah's name and he writes it on the heavenly gates. Talk about passing, but not because of his own merit. God redeems unlikely Tamar. What a testimony to God's grace in the lives of imperfect people. Changing them, bringing about his purposes. God works his plan of redemption no matter what. As we prepare, I'd like you to stand. We're gonna sing one last song together. But before we do that, go ahead and stand up and before we do that, as, as Matt and the band are coming up, I want to, to read this scripture together. Let's read the scripture, God's word together as a congregation. Let's, let's read it together. Psalm 103, 2 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Amen. Let's sing. In the name of the Father, In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come, we're gathered together to lift up your name, to call on our Savior, to fall on in the name of the Father, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come, we're gathered together.
your seats bow down as your people sing. We will rise with you, lifted on your wings, and we will Thank you, God, that you work in the midst of sinful people. You work in the midst of bad choices. Lord, you work when we're unaware of you, when we don't feel you, when we don't see you. Thank you that we can be sure, we can know that you were at work to bring about your redemptive purposes through difficulties, through trials, hardship, through all of life. Lord, through the raw through all parts of our life. Lord, you are working to redeem. God, thank you that you sent Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being the great redeemer. Thank you for the good news that you have come and preached freedom to the captives. Lord, we were once enslaved to sin, but thanks be to God that you have, you have preached freedom to us who once were far off and you brought us near. You've already bought us. You've already redeemed us.